You know, Swillian's deadly here. Just a little heads up that our best friends at Better Beer, partners of the Swillian, Core Lords Deluxe, are running a pretty massive treasure hunt that could make you over $46,000 richer. So during the month of July, Better Beer are giving you the chance to find two Bitcoins hidden in these specially marked cases of Better Beer Zero Carb cans all around Australia. Coinspot has hidden one inside a case of Zero Carb cans in BWS bottlers and another inside a case of Zero Carb cans at Dan Murphy's. So BWS and Dan Murphy's are the bottlers you want to go to to find these specially marked cartons. Each Bitcoin is valued at 46173 bucks and 4 cents as of June 29. So uh, that's what the Bitcoins are worth. You can't miss the cartons. They've got the little rocket ship, find the Bitcoin on the case, and um, they'll be in stores throughout July. And all you got to do is crack a tinny to see if you've won. The winning cans will give you the instructions on how to deem your prize. Good luck, mate. And um, as we always say here, you know, better be they're big contributors to Ain't That Swell. They keep our engines turning. More content, more programs, and just support the crew who support the potty, mate. It's that simple. Keeps us going. They could make you over $46,000 richer. That is pretty sick. You can get more details at betterbeer.com.au. Otherwise, see you at the BWS and Dan Murphy's. <laughs> mad. That's well presents Corlords. Yes, welcome to Corlords. Today's guest is, in my opinion, the undisputed biggest wild man to ever set foot in the ocean, to ever see the inside of a galactic wormhole, to ever send it on a skitsy fucking slab. There is quite simply no one more skits than Brendan Newton. And you won't get any disagreement from those who know, like Noah Dean, like Craig Anderson, like Mike Stewart. He's a bodyboarder, unbelievably, from Mona Vale on Sydney's northern beaches who sent it harder than any who've come before or since on waves of legitimate mortal coniquence, many of which aren't even surfed anymore because of the peril they pose. Included in this podcast is what I think takes the cake as the craziest surf yarn ever told in the 11 years of this program. I won't say any more than that, but when it hits, you're going to know about it. Now, Brendo also has his own podcast, Grey Space, which is epic and you should listen to. And this podcast was actually a joint podcast in which he interviews me and I interview him, which is kind of weird but fully worked because basically you get the most skits, surf tales you've ever heard sandwiched between finely detailed rants by yours truly, Simini, about the absolutely torched way of the world and the many systemic failures that characterize the modern condition. So you get your surfing, you get your sport, or the opioid of the masses as it's known, and then you get some bitter fucking truth pills to swallow straight after. What could be better? 
in the ad. <laughs> but that that Wayno one was so fucking juicy that I didn't give a shit if I had to turn it up every time he talked. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't have to turn it up every time he talked. But yeah, no, I, I yeah, I don't know, whatever. Hey, um, I'm gonna intro it, but we're gonna we're gonna do like a combo. So welcome to the gray space slash ain't that swell sort of concoction. This is episode 72 for the gray space. And then you've got Jeddo Smivy on the other end. Who's going to run the show for ain't that swell. Hey, Jeddo. You know, man, how you going? <laughs> thanks for, uh, thanks for giving us your time. Frothing dude of, uh, yeah, first became aware of you through an old mate of mine, Dave Drews, and uh, uh, yeah, just kind of loosely followed your career, I guess, but more so just kind of living vicariously through Drews and a few of those other guys from Tamar and, and uh, just following the bodyboarding scene through the early noughties, which was right when I was uh, as deep into surfing as I really ever got. Well, I don't know still pretty deep into it now, but that was when I was the full turned up frother. And uh, for my money, all the best shit was coming out of Boog World at that point. It was fascinating. You know, at the same time, you guys were doing what you were doing, pioneering many of the slabs that we now take for granted in the stick world. Uh, you know, surfing was still fucking whacking it on four foot Lennox head and shit. So they were worlds apart at that point. And 20 years later, surfing was kind of caught up to where you guys were at back then. But Man, it was fucking good to watch the early tensions, the superstars, uh, the no friends videos. These things were were wild when I was a grommet. Fuck yeah, I'm so stoked, man! And you've you've been an inspiration, walking that tightrope between like fucking just being able to pay the bills and being a proper journalist. And you've hit a crowd that obviously hungry for podcasts and with the eight that swell stuff and you've you've actually gone through a lot of my friendship groups like you hung on the cliffs of moa with like mickey and ferg and it was like literally three years before that we were fucking scaling that cliff looking for waves when we found eileen's um and so there's all these little dots on the map that you know you talked about andy campbell in your convo with um with the central coast ledge. Um, yeah. 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 And then Andy Campbell's kind of been a part of my journey with the ships and stuff in 2002 or 2003. And like, there's all these little dots on the map and it's, it's pretty magic. You know, like I grew up getting fucking teased by, by stand up surfers and getting punched in the head for being a bodyboarder. And, uh, it's really nice to connect the dots and be, be humans about it and then learn from each other. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, the top dogs all recognize that bodyboarding is uh, just commands respect in the waves that matter, waves of truth, as we say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, Fergal and, and Mickey, fuck, they put me up for a couple of weeks. Uh, when I was up there, I was just a grom then, man, 23 years old, you know, one year out of playing A grade rugby league, still a yep. fucking basically like a. A thug hiding out under, at that point, still growing hair, still trying to grow my hair out and pretend I wasn't who I was. And yeah, um, you know, it was it was good for me to be able to disappear into someone else's world. And yeah, man, fuck yeah, I, 
I, I connect on the rugby level too. I grew up playing juniors at the Ringer Rats, like fucking oh, true, yeah. throwing my head into rucks and trying to do all that shit. So I, as I listen to your journey about footy, I grew up on the hill with my grandpa yelling at people at Manly. And um, so there's like lots of little, little connections there. I'm stoked. That's to classic, chat man. I, I've definitely been robbed a couple of times at Rat Park, fucking playing for Randwick <laughs> when I was in <laughs> Grom. Fuck, mate. Couldn't get a good ref over there. That's for sure. What a joke. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go for it, mate. What What do we got? Well, man. Yeah. Let's. Uh, you mentioned growing up on the north side, early days in um Monavale, I understand, and uh, it's a pretty trippy place. I was thinking, considering the trajectory that your career took. Afterwards, I mean, I, I guess the north side, there's a few, a couple slabs, you know, you got Shippies and, and Winky, I guess, and then you got a uh, little Avalon, and I guess even Mona on its day has some, I remember it having some fucking juicy closeouts you could pack. But talk to us about the early days and, uh, you know, where this thirst for insane cones of mortal conequence began. <laughs> I can't believe I'm on the I'm on the other side of the ain't that swell language, man. I've been listening to that shit for so long. <laughs> oh, the, the I you've thrown a conequence quote at me like in the first couple of minutes. That's fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the the shaman, wrote, all that stuff. You wrote the big book of cones of mortal conequence. I don't think <laughs> anyone has packed more. Mortal cones than uh than you you know and that's the fucking dead truth of it like it doesn't matter who you talk to in the bodyboarding fraternity and i've got you know uh, quite a few mates that are at the pointy end of it and your name stands alone at the fucking pinnacle of skit cunt slab shamanism so big dog for the gaff to you fuck yeah that's unreal um it's just kind of matching that with trying to live a life of like reasonable sanity in the next 20 years following the mortal conequence journey. <laughs> that's the, um, that's the good juice that I'm sort of tapping into now in my life. So when I grew up in Mona, I was lucky that on the shore break at Mona, there was all these bodyboarders that were just fucking so cool, man. Like you had Matt Riley and Dean Fergus and, uh, Adrian Heibner, Tully Beaver, Dan Single, Ben Player, Toby Player, and they all had all these, these, um, these, these three. It was like a fucking ballerina, like the coolest, most agile, steezy humans that just kind of walk around in their bodies and then hit these shories and do these like beautiful 360s off the top and rollos through the lip. And like it was like watching poetry. Matt Riley, if anyone's watched him bodyboard he's the closest you get to like Stuart and Spencer Skipper it's the most amazing thing so he was 10 years older than me when I was 12 years old he was getting you know 80 grand off more bodyboards and I was watching all these videos and my brother and his mates my older brother and his mates used to surf ashore and watch him and and then Trent Mitchell Pete Moore Dave Jarvis and all these guys started going over to Hawaii when they were 15, 16. And then, so for me, it was like I was doing the local comps and coming first and second and all that shit. But it was all about style. Like it didn't matter how, how good you're going at comps. Like it's how smooth you rode the wave. And I really grew in that kind of flow state of riding a wave. And and then when I got to like 14, I'm like, fuck this. I Like I can surf as good as these guys for sure. 
and I can also surf big waves because I had a hunger for risk taking. So ever since I was one year old, I was a, like my dad would say, I'd sprint down the middle hallway of the house and go head first off the steps. And I'd always do like crazy cliff jumps, just not trying to necessarily be a hero, although that makes you feel really good. It was a natural personality trait. So when I got the knack for being able to ride smoothly on a wave and connect the dots and connect with the ocean and, and, and do that kind of bodyboarding style and bodyboarding was, was it man. Like it was not, not surfing at Mona. Like we, we rode bodyboards. That's just what happened. It was the coolest way to ride a wave. As far as I'm concerned in my teens, like I had no surfers I looked up to. They're all bodyboarders. Mm. So guys like Dean Fergus, Matt Riley, Bill Williams, all those guys are just the smooth, like Dan Crozier, like they're all the smoothest fucking wave riders on the planet as far as I was concerned. So my whole world was taken up with bodyboarders. And then when I got to the point where I knew I could scoop waves um, on the shore break at Womp, which is like a little mini Waimea around the basin at Mona. And then I thought, well, I'm in year nine. I could work at Kmart and save up for a trip. I'll just take the punt and I'll fly to the North Shore and I'll stay with Pete Moore and his gang at the Waimea house. And then all these uh, waves. Uh, Foo's backpackers, right? Plant, uh, wa- uh, plantation Sandy's. backpackers. Sandy's, yeah. Well, Sandy oh. owned the house. It was like, it was near plantation backpackers. Sandy oh, okay. owned his house on the hill there. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And then when the when that came about, I remember saying to Trent Mitchell when I was 15, I was like, oh, do you reckon I could go to Hawaii? Um, You know, do you reckon I'm old enough to go to Hawaii? And he was four years older than me. And he's like, it doesn't matter how old you are. It's like, it's how mature you are. I was like, well, I can fucking do it then. Like I can do this. Um, Doesn't matter. You know, he gave me that kind of permission. And my dad and my parents were like, always super like, wow. Like he, Brendan's a weirdo. He's so driven, but I was super good at convincing them I'm capable. So they got on and backed me. They said, I'll pay half your trip if you earn half. So I think it was a 1,500 to get there and back. So I earned $700 as a checkout ticket came out and then, um, and then they paid the rest and I flew over Heavy. on my own Wow! and I got there and I remember I lost my passport passport in the, the first 24 hours. I was like so scattered and I was just all about the waves and, um, yeah. So that kind of started the journey. And when you're exposed to pipe and how shit it is to try to get a hollow barrel at pipe, you come back to Australia and you realize you got a whole coastline full, full of wa- like waves that are like probably better. <laughs> no, it's true, man. You yeah. Get way more pitted here than, yeah, than, yeah, than yeah, more, yeah. There's way more hollow options. Like maybe not exactly like pipe, but semi exactly like pipe. Like yeah. Yeah. Like it's not the same, but it's like you've got 400 of them to choose from across the nation. So if you just want to drive there in a troopy with your mates, like you can get pipe barrels. And when I realized that, I was like surfing lunars and I was like, this is so much heavier than pipe. Like what, why are all those wankers getting like bullying me at pipe? Like why, why can't I just get a big barrel here? Like, and then, so we started doing that and documenting it. And then that was kind of going into the early noughties, like you said, where we just kept on just going fucking nuts. I remember there was a couple of guys, Adam Bemwell, Crashy, me and him. Crashy, had, I've heard about Crashy. Yeah. yeah, mate, he is a, he is, um, he's like a myth, bro. Like he's so gnarly. Um, we used to 
have this healthy competitive edge. He's like a little scavenging kid who just like would we'd we'd surf for six hours side by side at off the wall to see who can get the biggest one or the best one or the shot or the clip. And he just wouldn't give up. You'd just be like so hungry, but I just wouldn't give up all day. Your ulcers all over your feet. And it was so weird that we did that. <laughs> I heard, he's so mythical. I heard a story that one blew out so hard. It just, it just blew him straight into the ether and that's where he exists now. <laughs> I reckon that might be true on a, on some level, that is true. <laughs> Man, I understand really the trip that put you on the map was a trip to the Canaries uh, back with, uh, I think it was Rawlins and uh, uh, the Player Brothers or maybe just Ben and, and, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Tomega. And uh, yeah, you, at that point, I guess you were a uh, hungry, young Grom. And from what I was told, you kind of made your name packing like, I don't know, 10-foot onshore slabs uh that were yeah basically closeouts can you talk to us uh yeah about that trip man and and some of the sessions that that really stood out for you well the year before i surfed shippies and lucked into the wave of the day on like a 15 18 foot session and that actual double page spread came out the month i started uni so i had a gap year i said to my parents i'm gonna have a gap year I'll go nuts and then lock down for med science to do physio or something. And I was sitting in these big lecture theaters, fucking 300 people listening to this one cunt up the front talking about something that I didn't care about. And I'm looking at this double page spread that just come out from shippies. And I'm like, and that was when we had a feeling like I could be a pro, you know, like I could be a pro bodyboarder. I didn't matter how much money I earned. As long as I get like 10, 15 grand, I could, I could do this for 10 years, 20 years, make something of it. I didn't even, and then I was looking around me, all these people just, just like, just, I, I was so restless. And then I remember going straight down to the uni travel agent and I booked a flight to Tahiti on my own to go to the end of the road. So three months later, mid year break, you get about a four week break at uni. I got the bus down to the end of the road at Tahiti and we lucked into like a proper 15 foot chope swell, no one around. And I just remember oh, yeah. scooping these barrels and just going, Holy fuck. Like I'm riding 15 foot barrels and I can do it. Like I feel it. I feel like I can do it and I can do it properly. Big West bowl ones. And, I, and that's when I came home and I quit uni I was like, I'm just going to do this for my life. And man, let's like, just press pause for a second <laughs> on, on that first. Well, fuck. I mean, I would love to talk about the shippies mission and the, the Chopes trip, but let's start with Chopes. Like, um, I mean on days like that, what year are we talking? Like, uh, 2003, 2003. So yeah, uh, this was about around about the time when I become aware of you. I, yeah. I can remember this. I can remember seeing like there was pretty much no photos or footage that really come out of those trips. Like there was a couple of weird little grainy fucking shots. And I remember seeing a couple and just being like, what the fuck is going on here? Cause at that point, like, yeah, stand up surfing wasn't really there yet. Uh, you know, t towing like, yeah. And, and like there was the, like, but 
Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of a, a level up. It, it well, Led, like. Led, Led did that one in 2000. I remember eyeing that off and going, that's fucked. I want to do that. And and that was like three years later. Biff was having a go, you know, before he passed. Big Biff, you know, Biff from the end of the road. Nah. Uh, he was the he was the hustler at the end of the road, this American lad. Everyone knows Biff. I don't even know his real name. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I do yeah. know Biff. Yeah, I remember yeah. when he passed, actually, but I yeah. don't know. I don't know much about him. Yeah, yeah we hung with name. Biff heaps. He was super interesting dude. He hung with us boogers heaps, but, yeah, he was there. Man, yeah. So what was going on on those big days, like, at Chopes at that point? Who were you sharing the lineup with? You know, what was the... What was the surfer's take on, on what you guys were doing at that point? Yeah. So like from my perspective, it was all about, I either sit in a lecture theater for four years or I, I just have a crack at this. And then, so I was just taking off on all, all the like gnarliest waves on dark and shit like that. And then there was no one bodyboarding really. Like it was just me and Tate Martin sitting in the lineup and Druzy was out there. Fergo was in the mix those years, but we, you don't know it chokes how big it is because you, you, you just, the, the wave obviously comes in as particularly on a West swell. It's like a massive slippery dip. You can feel the velocity coming past your fins and you're riding like flat chat on the like gnarliest part of the wave where the West bowl is bending and you can't see the roof of the wave because it's so big. So yeah, you don't actually know, how big it is like, and it was only a couple of years later that I realized that that first day we had was like 10 to 15 foot because you feel the different velocity in the, in the corner of the barrel, you know? Mm. So yeah, we just had a couple of sessions like that. And the next day, um, was particularly like this gnarly sort of 15 foot session and Tate Martin got this drop top to bottom. And I remember them telling me the night before, Oh, we better fucking go tomorrow because Brendo's gonna go. <laughs> and they must have like earmarked me as like that psycho kid, but I didn't feel like that. I just knew what I was facing if I went home and did a normal life. Kind of on that verge of like, I either do this or I do that thing that makes me so restless and so just consumed with like fear of status quo. Like I was it was the real kind of turning point in my life. And the reason I mentioned that in the lead up to the Canaries trip was that when I quit uni, Mickey invited me to Canaries and I literally had fucking put all my eggs in that basket. So when I turned up to Canaries and I saw Tamiga and Ben and Rawlins and Crawley and Mickey and I was like, all right, this is my shot. Like, I don't give a shit what happens. I'm just going to die. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to... And um, not die, but I knew that I trusted in a higher power for some reason. And there was this thing that I knew I'd be okay. Um, and I just took off on the biggest waves I could, but not in a stupid way. I also loved the science of finding the chip in and finding like the roll in and, and how, how you could like hold a rail and ride over the shocky and all those little techniques that you learn over the years, you know? Mm, yeah, well, that's the difference, man, between someone uh, who's an idiot and, and just sending it for the, the photo or just the, I don't know, the infamy versus someone, you know, you were in love with the, the science and the art form of riding these bits of water. So, 
yeah, that's what preserves you. In my opinion, I don't know if it's a cosmic thing or, or whatever, but when your heart's in the right place in the, the game of mortal cones, I feel like you get a little bit looked after. And maybe, totally. that, is God, maybe that is God. You know, interesting to note, man, uh, you know, you said like you were ready to die, but talking to your peers, like that's not a joke. Like you laughed, but that was the understanding from the top guys in the game was that you were, you, you were literally fearless. Like you, you actually didn't care whether you died or you had more, it was more so that you had like a, a confidence that you weren't going to die because you were being looked after. Therefore it was all, you know, a free, free roll of dice in a sense. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. How no, it it's good, man. Like I, I think I, I hate just to be straight. Like I hate religion. I don't think it's helpful. I don't like control. I don't like boxing people into certain dogmas. But when there's something that totally takes takes your belly and takes you somewhere and you just can't deny the feeling of being in that zone, which is what it was like, it's just fucking this beautiful trust and everything is just like a joy. And when I was riding waves at that point in my life, it was just like, this is what I do. Like I just, I'm going to be looked after by a higher power because this is what I'm called to do. And, um, you have all those wonderful little complexities, like elements that Russ Burke talked about where you've got heavy water that bounces off the shelf and pushes you up and saves you, you know, that Chopu stuff he spoke about when it was like 20 foot, you've got all these weird elements of trust that kind of come into the picture and then you're either in that flow or you're not. So people are not in that flow. They're like, Oh, he's got a death wish. He's a fucking religious maniac. And you know, it's much more than that. And it's far more nuanced than that. Um, mm. when you're in the flow, you know, mm, fascinating, man. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to kind of, <clears throat> as a mere mortal, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around putting yourself in situations like that um but but... i think i think jed when you're doing your podcasts and your journalism and the way you fucking rally a crowd and do your tours and stuff there's kind of like you think it's just like you know just you don't give a shit and you're doing your thing but i think you probably experience that unction that sense of flow and i'm just doing what i do and you kind of looked after in the process. But if you ask anyone else, it's like Jed Smith is a fucking maniac who manages to do these wild tours and get juice out of the most outrageous people. But you think that's just what you do, you know, like I actually think you've got something in you, which is why I wanted to talk about your story and some of your thoughts as part of the gray space platform. I find it fascinating some of the insights that you might have from your perspective. Yeah. Well, similar to yourself, like, you know, I had nothing to go back to, uh, and I still don't, I'm not in the clear financially by any means. And, um, yeah, I guess when you got nothing to go back to anything seems better than that kind of. And I'm like, if I got to get up on stage and, and take the piss out of myself, like, I've spent my whole life doing that. I'm more than happy to do that. If I'll do anything for a laugh, you know, if I can yep. see my mates or people like me and I'm able to represent our culture and, and get a laugh and, and, you know, make people feel good about themselves. I'll fucking throw, I'll be the barbed wire man. 
totally do that. Yeah. Um, and maybe it is that, that surrender to this is, this is me regardless, you know, whether it be financial pressure or just restlessness that I experienced in the lecture hall, you know, like maybe when you do give up, that's what you do. Like, um, maybe the other side of it is just like living this kind of life where you're hedging your bets constantly and just playing status quo, which I think it seems to be okay for some people. So I won't criticize it. It seems to be fine for some people and they mm. get, get by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, man, I don't know. You watch Adam Curtis's films. You like, you look at the rates of, um, pharmaceutical drug consumption in, in like, it's like a direct line between the richer the country is the higher, uh, the consumption of antidepressants and stuff like that. So there's almost a, a direct correlation between wealth and fucking material wealth, material success and misery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know how good the status quo is serving people in, in a material reality where there's no respect given to spiritual practice or the spiritual world. There's no respect given to community, to the humble community man who's running the fucking, I don't know, the local dojo for judo or boxing or football or whatever. Like these are the real heroes in the world. These, these faceless, selfless people you've never heard of just doing the same shit that people have been doing for a few hundred years, but that's not what gets celebrated in our culture. It's the influences. Totally hits and ass it's fucking uh you know eight packs and uh fucking european cars it's just it, a, it a seems like you shit. you straddle that chasm pretty well because you're in the world of putting you know cunts like kelly slater on a podcast which is that world in some way but then you advocate for this stuff which i think is it's super interesting. You're like straddling the chasm between like the real and then the fucking Instagram famous. <laughs> <laughs> totally, man. Yeah. Um, and ultimately like, like going back to your, your question about like, uh, being a, a, a maniac or, or being in flow, like it's, it's a few experiences stand out. Like, um, I guess working as a journalist and, living in Asia uh, at a certain point made me uh, so disenfranchised with Western culture and capitalism and the material reality that I, I honestly, when I returned back to Australia after living in Asia for a few years, I couldn't take it seriously. Eh? I was just like, this is a piss take. Like, like all of our wealth, and our entire way of life is built on the slave labor of the people I was just hanging out with in Java and Thailand and these places. And so like, I can't take Western culture seriously. And I think that that comes through in, in the way I perform on Fuck stage yeah. and, That's awesome. and, and my yep. entire body of work, because I've sat in huts alongside you know, women like mothers, grandmothers who've been working for three months straight on some fucking luxury resort in uh, Bali or, or whatever, um, you know, literally like seven days a week, three months straight, coming home, cooking meals at the end of the day for their family or like all of them sharing one single room uh, of a thatched bamboo makeshift humpy uh, one street back from where all the, the, the foreigners and, and tourists are, are drinking a cocktail that, is like a week's wages. Like it, it just fucking doesn't make any fucking sense, man. And so, yeah, all that is in me. Like, you know, I look at someone like uh, 
Che Guevara, right? And, and the process that radicalized him. And I don't see myself as being all that different in terms of just that, that process of radicalization where you get to a certain point, like for him, it was, he rode a motorcycle around South America and, and, and coming from a middle-class background, he saw just the amount of poverty that was the result of the interference of Western powers and various dictators and all this political interference and the, the erosion of workers' rights and trade unions and all this shit. And it just left people on the bones of their ass. And he was so fucking sickened by it that he couldn't go back to being the person he was. And I am similar in that respect. Add to that, that I also was raised by a single mom. Uh, you know, we were already poor. We weren't middle-class like Che Guevara. We fucking, we slogged it out, man. I moved 10 times before I was 13. And um, yeah, you know, my outlet was football and, and surfing and, and when I was playing football, you know, I was the captain because I would do shit that people didn't want to do. Fuck yeah. Yep. People, people would tell me growing up, oh, like the whole time, oh, you're playing the NRL, you, you know, you're going to play for Australia, you're going to play for New South Wales. Like that was my dream as a kid. Um, and then surfing co-opted that in my teenage years. And I just, at that point, the idea of, you know, putting 20 kilos on of solid, clean muscle uh, just didn't appeal to me anymore. That That's what it would have taken taken to get to that next level but i retain those qualities from being a leader from when i was five years old man i was given that fucking job of, of being the cunt that did shit that no one wanted to do for the good of the team yeah and i've never lost that and I, I still i still run on that that's that that's still in me and part of being a leader is that you have to be accountable like and you you have to own up to your mistakes and you know really all that all that matters if you are a leader is your relationship to truth. And um, you just have to be like, you know, that, that just means accepting when you're wrong and when you're off, you're making these fucking captain's calls or you're, you're making these big calls that dictate, uh, you know, the paths of a lot of other people around you. And if you're wrong, then you just have to own up to that. And I'm fine with that. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. And I'm still doing that. I, really, I it, do, it doesn't gut you when you when you really got to fall on your sword. Like you feel like a fucking idiot, or oh, you feel like an idiot. But at the end of the day, like I, I'm very much at peace with, you know, I know what I know until I don't know. And uh, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So, like that's how it is. And that's incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I've been raised in this way and in my family, like particularly my, my granddad, you know, these people were hard scrabble people from the, you know, the center of New South Wales, you know, poor people and boxers and like just gritty, like the bottom rung of the working class. And uh, yeah, that's how we talk to each other. We're brutal. Like the fucking truth is brutal. They say truth without kindness is brutality. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of brutality going down. <laughs> was there? Yeah, right. That's super fascinating, man. I'm actually passionate about talking to you about this social justice, this global social justice issue, because it's something that I've been working really fucking hard with and got some really interesting perspectives with through my travels over the last decade. So I started out working with this group called AIM Mentoring, and we we first off got 20,000 Aboriginal kids, um, a mentor in a school, we like mobilized 10,000 uni students to fucking train and, and connect with kids. And 
and the government loved it, you know, it was the biggest whack at closing the gap in Australian history and all this like kind of transactional appraisal with KPMG auditing our return on investment as nine dollars for every a dollar hustled and we ended up hustling 150 million dollars um to to do like 15 years of this program until we realized like it's just a fucking game that we're in that we're trying to use the same system that we're trying to change Hmm. to change the system getting the crumbs from the system that we're trying to change so we got really good at obviously getting that corporate social responsibility money blah 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 basically there was a pretty clear indicator when I was responsible for getting a thousand kids through school at 50 different schools between Sydney and Bega. And I had like 60 kids come through the year 12 cohort with mentors, Aboriginal kids who are just, you know, hungry to make a positive step after school. And three or four of them wanted to work at Bunnings and Bunnings was giving us 200 grand at the time as a national partner. And Mr. Bunnings was like all about it supposedly and then I went to the local, because West Farmers was the umbrella company, but Bunnings was a subsidiary anyway. I went to the local Bunnings and I was like, I just want to get these three kids, a, you know, a summer job as the next step in their positive pathway after they've fucking wrangled a, a life of disadvantage and come through and completed year 12. And it was such a bureaucratic head fuck of a process. I'm like, this is not, this is, we're not changing anything. <laughs> we're just operating in this bubble, getting good at, you know, we got good at a certain amount of things like getting money and mentoring kids and blah, 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 but it wasn't changing anything. Bunnings Mm. was going back to business as usual. What we did was we decided to take a huge risk. We smashed the whole organization and went global and said, look, all we want to do is make the world a more connected and fairer place. We're going to fully globalize and say, all right, We've got this mentoring model that's worked in Australia, but it's got its limits because it's basically feeding from the same system we want to change. And we went around to like all sorts of countries to the point where two two years later, we're working with 54 different countries, all these different marginalized demographics. And we put together a global network basically just saying, hey, we've got a few ideas of how to change the world, but can we all come together as unlikely connections globally and and try to have a crack at this. So that's the point we're at now where we've Mm. got all these people all around the world ready to make change. We've got a few designs of how to do that. But, um, when I hear you talk about social justice, about inequality, about how fucked it is that we buy a $7 t-shirt from Kmart that's, you know, been knitted by some lady who's had to work and cook and do all the things that she has to do for her family for nothing. That all kind of is really fresh me when I listen to you talk? Yeah, I guess it comes back to, in a lot of these countries, let's take Indonesia as a good example, like, and the history of that joint. So they had a, it's a good case study, really, because it fucking nails it. And it's where so much of the world's textiles are made. Uh, and you can watch an amazing John Pilger documentary called The New Rules of the World if you want to see inside a, a fucking Javanese sweatshop that's making Gap and Adidas and all these huge labels. Like Indonesia it had a socialist president, uh, Sukarno, in the early 60s. Um, he ended up actually, he was a part of a huge global network of socialist leaders from around the world, most of them in Africa. Um, and there's actually, uh, I think, yeah, 
maybe it was the late 50s or, or early 60s, but they had a few conventions where they all fucking went there and they all met up and they discussed openly how they were going to unionize all these countries and, and push back on the colonial powers that for all uh, these years had been, you know, stealing their resources and uh, leaving them in, in, in poverty and, and you know, t- like turning to slaves and stuff. So there was that, there was this huge moment. There was this moment in, in modern history where it looked like all these countries were going to link arms across Asia and Africa. What ended up happening in Sukarno's case was uh, the CIA and uh, I think it's MI6 and Australia, they toppled this guy and, and uh, via a coup and put uh, you know General President Sahado in power. And they Sahado and his crew, they killed like between 500,000 and a million kind of left-leaning, or just people like us, I guess, just like uh, students peasants, farmers, uh, and, and socialists. And, uh, you know, a lot of which happened in Bali. I think some of the worst was in Bali, in fact, and they still exhume mass graves there around Chichikan and, and some of the, the iconic waves there even. So what ended up happening was Sahado opens up the country to various foreign multinationals who then rip all the resources out. Him and his family, the oligarchy, they get kickbacks from, the multinationals and on top of that any hope of workers rights uh like the trade unions like the, the people who protect those textile workers you know if you want to start up a trade union you're gonna get a fucking bullet in the head because uh that doesn't suit the interests of either Sahado or, or, or the western powers either so to this day now you go to indonesia and it it is right up there with like it, it's the most chaotic and destitute country i've been to like i just got back from india and you think india in your mind before you go there you think india is this fucking chaotic like impoverished joint it is leagues ahead of where indo is okay um so yeah that that's that that's what creates the cheap uh textiles that the underpin most of our major fashion labels uh including the surf industry and um yeah so that's where we're at so i mean in order to 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 reassess or reconfigure a system like that i guess it comes down to paying uh it comes down to these corporations paying their workers better it comes down to having really staunch trade unions in these countries which of course is going to boost the cost of the of these items but fucking oath like i don't need the amount of t-shirts i have i'd be happy for just a quarter of those that were made well and don't fall apart and uh man go to any vinnies and look at the amount of fucking clothes there are like we're dying we're drowning in fast fashion so it's not like there is an issue and then i don't know man then there's like the international monetary fund and those banks that keep these countries in debt and so what happened in Indonesia that happened all across Africa, Latin America, that, that same fucking interference, that exact same model. I think it's called the Jakarta method. There's a book called the Jakarta method. Um, and so, yeah, that's basically, you know, what underpins it, our quality of life or our consumer culture here. It's like that saying, uh, you know, Britain's real working class is in India. Like, that's kind of true like yeah okay yeah um, not, not to take away from 
working class people here because it's not their fault. Working class people here are, are as much slaves to the system in terms of mortgage debt and, and stuff like that anyways. So um, yeah, I'm not saying working class people in any country have agency. They don't. They're fucking as, as under the pump as, as people in the third world, just with better infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, no, cool. Thanks for going there with me because, like, we could easily flow through the surf yarns and feel like heroes and shit um, because I, I, I'm I, genuinely interested to get people who are brave and take leadership and kind of challenge, like, what the fuck do we do if we really want to have people with a fair amount of resources all around the globe? <laughs> I'm pretty excited about kind of just getting more people at the table initially, like, getting your Aboriginal kid, getting your artist from fucking Thailand, getting your teacher from Uganda and, and putting them all at the table with a CEO who runs a billion dollar company from New York and have like a proper engagement five ways, you know, um, and get people to engage on that level with more people at the table. I feel like that might help us get on a path at least in the right direction. Yeah, that's one way of doing it. I guess uh, I'm all about strikes and boycotts and, you know, working class solidarity that doesn't stop at Australia's border, but extends into into in places like Indonesia where we spend so much time and just understanding that uh, we're one and the same and, and, and to be, to show solidarity with workers across the planet. Like, uh, you know, I've traveled to so many countries and uh, had so many good times with, the working class and working poor of, of other countries. I don't believe that they should live so much worse off than we do here. The idea of like boycotts and, and, and unions, us versus them, poor versus rich stuff. Like I've never met like a rich person that, that doesn't have a soul, but they just like kind of hide it in, in different ways. And I think if we kind of sort of do the us and them, where we sort of pigeonhole and don't really solve any problems. I know that there's definitely some evil maneuvers that have happened as you articulated with the Indo story, but I just feel like that every human is a human with, with guts and bravery and vulnerability. Like even if you're a fucking billionaire, I, I think that's, that's what I feel like anyway. And it's kind of proven true the last 10 years as I've found different people around the world at the end of the day, like it's just all about redistribution of wealth. And it, it, I wouldn't say that it's like us uh, versus them in, in terms of like um, rich versus poor. It's more like everyone versus a fucking 0.1% who are hoarding resources. Like you wouldn't believe what like, more money than they can spend. That money needs to be redistributed. Every dollar over a billion that gets earned should be redistributed. No cunt needs a billion dollars. You can't, like, what's the fucking point? All that is doing is creating scarcity. You know, that's just resources. That's time and energy that's being stored in a cloud that needs to be released so we can uh, take time off to build each other's homes, to grow food for each other. Um, you know, and there's examples of where this already exists, like the kibbutzes in, in, in Israel. It's not the best example because a lot of that land is stolen from Palestinians, but the con concept of a kibbutz, it's the same as a, as an MO or, or a commune. It's like just a workers cooperative where you, you know, you and 15 people, you all work to build each other's homes. You, you work to grow food 
and then you sell that food and eat that food and that that money that you make off the food pays for tuition for people from the kibbutz and the people who go on to become doctors put money back into the kibbutz uh in order to uh you know keep the kibbutz afloat and pay back what they were given like there is many systems and the potential to uh kind of go a different route but i wouldn't be relying too much on ceos and, and billionaires um to to change their tune voluntarily i think they need to be pushed um and sure. every every dollar is a vote in, in capitalism so you know uh you can start you can send really powerful messages simply by where you put your money um and so yeah i, I kind of look at that as just grow i think the change has to start at the the bottom and move up but that said if you can get some fucking some really wealthy people um doing wim hof and, and meditation on the daily um then that is probably a quicker route to, to get where we we all deserve to be totally yeah i, I mean i i reckon i'm i'm kind of willing to give it a punt um to be honest, <laughs> I'm going to go pretty hard at the next decade and see what we can put together in terms of finding characters that are, are willing to redistribute wealth and dig inside their souls, whether it be through some Wim Hof or some other transitory process. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I can fucking talk for hours on this shit because, uh, yeah, this has been like, you know, my career as a journalist in terms of, working for the mainstream media, you know, work for Vice, Asia Pacific, written over 200 articles for Vice, but I've written for News Limited and The Guardian. Like, you know, I've written for fucking News Corps and the other side. I don't know many people who've gone both sides of the that political divide. So like what I wrote about generally was the failures of capitalism, system failures that target uh, people on the planet or that affect people and the planet. And a lot of this shit is just, it's pretty banal. It's, you know, it's stuff like house prices, cost of living, commute times. Um, and as a result of, of writing these kinds of articles that that's why I was able to transcend that political divide that exists in the mainstream media between left and right, because there's just no left or right in the way I see the world and the articles that I write. It's really more just about uh, the way people are getting ripped off or their health or their time is being abused or stolen from them. So that applies to people on both sides of the political spectrum. And for this reason, that's why I believe I'm, I was no longer in a job eventually because these articles went fairly viral and they would, I could see them, you know, the two last prime ministers or the last three all come from where I'm from, man. Like, um, Malcolm Turnbull's, you know, from Bondi Junction. Albo's from Camperdown. I lived in Camperdown with a single mum, just like Albo. Uh, ScoMo went to Sydney High, a fucking selective school uh, just on Cleveland Street, just near Redfern. Um, and, you know, ScoMo being the exception, but the other two, like, particularly Turnbull, I could see that in the course of writing these articles. I, I know exactly what's kicking around in that cunt's head, like, He's from the 70s and 80s, like the eastern suburbs, when it was uh, a pretty eclectic zone, very eclectic, right up until the, the early noughts, really, when, when the money started coming in. And so 
I know that he wants that guy believes in fairness. He he likes having fucking um poor neighbors, battler neighbors. He 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 likes knowing fucking guys who work on the wharves, who play rugby league. You know, so he's gonna go into bat for those people. And uh he did. And uh he, he did in a big way with, with with his housing policy and they they fucked him, they assholed him over it. He was trying to get rid of negative gearing. And, uh, you know, he, he sent, that was like what these little housing levers, they fucking can make the whole deck of cards crumble. Like th- these little fucking, they, they seem like little kind of devilers in the detail political policies, but when tweaked, they release so much cash, but they also, uh, you know, cause disruptions to the housing market, which is the great Ponzi scheme of capitalism. It, it's what underpins cost of living pressures the price of your fucking house and land like it's all hinged to that so when you start writing articles about this shit like you start turning heads uh of people who matter and who can fuck you off really quickly and that is that what happened to you oh i'm only guessing but yeah (laughs) at a certain point like there was just no desire to publish these kinds of articles anymore and um or maybe it was that they were uh from my perspective yeah it just it became economically not viable for me to do that anymore i just simply could not get ahead in, in oh because the, the publications weren't getting run therefore you weren't getting paid or uh even when they ran the, the money was not sufficient to cover the costs i never got offered a job in the mainstream media because those jobs are locked off to elite so i had to like kind of go this backdoor route through dude, I went to high school with and knew this bloke and that bloke and like fucking kind of swindled me in to, to some editor who was uh, sympathetic to this kind of stories I was pitching. And that was a chick who was from Penrith. So she was familiar with uh, low socioeconomic pressures and demands. And yeah, so, and then eventually, I don't know, it just, it just petered out. The interest petered out. I was spending so much time pitching articles and that's all time you don't get paid for. You're freelance. You're not on the books. You can't get on the books. So you just end up, it just wears you down, burns you out, burn me out, left me broke and uh, fairly demoralized. And uh, fortunately, it was all around about this time that I started a podcast, which was the perfect place for me to end up because, uh, yeah, there is no gatekeepers here. No one can tell me what I can or can't say. And I have the, the real like boots on the ground knowledge and experience of these levers these capitalistic failures that have devoured not just the working class here but the working class abroad and you know i'm gonna keep fucking i'm gonna keep saying these things forever like uh there'll be no stopping this and that's in part a tribute to the people who i've broken bread with the poor people all over this world that i've broken bread with um it's a tribute to the hardships of my own family and it's a tribute to my utter fucking disdain for the way that um, media elites and the mainstream media and political elites uh, take the piss out of us and everyone knows they're taking the piss out of us the problem is that um, it's just fucking what do you do to change the fucker like you can you like everyone knows it's fucked you can vote trump in i mean you can but it's not going to change anything like uh, you know, he, he's just some, he's just another rich cunt who's just happened to stumble upon the, the book of phrases that connects with uh, working class angst. But um, 
yeah, like, how do you change it? Like, people are mad, people are angry. They know it's a, a piss take and a G up. And um, I guess, like, I'm one of the people representing that that angst in my own way, both with unapologetic truth, but also fearsome fucking piss taking, mate, taking the piss as hard as I can. I suppose from my perspective, you know, spend the last 20 years working with Aboriginal kids and looking around the world at different things, visiting the ghettos down in Louisiana and recruiting mentors from all different countries. I, I kind of, I try to keep myself buoyant by not, assuming anyone is bad or anyone has bad uh intentions 100 percent, yeah 100 man like I, I i see the world the exact same way i i don't think there is good and bad in this world i think that generally people just are a product of their environment they're they're a product of the the parents they were raised with and uh the people that they were surrounded by and the genes that are in them so like you know this whole concept of uh free will versus determinism like i think there's fuck all free will in this world the problem with elites uh is that it is a culture it 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 does come with a whole set of beliefs and it's often nihilistic and misanthropic in the sense that um they think that the reason people are poor uh is their own fault or they they think that there's like these weird fucking things i get i hear that get bandied around these imperial tertiary education institutions like harvard and fucking yale and shit where you know in out in these anthropological courses they're teaching stuff like oh humans can't uh exist in in numbers or tribes bigger than 120 people uh you know beyond that uh, there is some like uh like war and conflict is inevitable and all these like really bizarre misanthropic negative takes on, on on what humans are and are not capable of and then i look at like uh you know tibetan buddhism and the stuff that comes out of cultures like that and it's like these people are fucking so happy with literally nothing like that you can't even reach there's no material access point to the kind of happiness that these people have generated and they've generated it through simply uh, daily practice of, of meditation and, and pranayama and various forms of breath work. And then, you know, engaging in exercise and uh, hygiene, cleaning, fucking philosophy, uh, you know, which is essentially, you know, another way of saying like, do your breath work, do your meditation, then talk a bit of shit with your mates, like, and you'll be fucking wrapped but uh, uh, yeah, it, the problem is I'm not saying billionaires and, and the the super rich and the, the elites are bad people. They're just acting on bad information. Yeah. I suppose my response to that would be I'm just going to like typical fucking Brendo when Brett Lilliman told me you can't earn a living off, off bodyboarding in 2003, like, what is a fucking living? I'm here talking to you 25 years later. I'm living like, I don't know. Like the only reason I've got a job that pays me more than a hundred grand a year is because I'm fucking told my boss that I jumped off a boat 15 Ks out to sea for the sake of the team. And that's what I think leadership is like, that's, that's a living like, you know, like I, the typical Brando, I'll, I'll just advocate for what I feel until I prove it's right. And then, 
I believe every human's good. I believe there's fucking billionaires out there that want to change the world and I'm going to find them. Yeah. And I reckon you will. I reckon you're the man for the job, man. Like, <laughs> I mean, the point is though, like when you do find them, how are you going to change their mind? How are you going to undo decades of, of, of bad information and uh, dodgy Intel that shaped their central nervous system and brain in, in such a way. And I would suggest like, again, like you've really only got three tools. It seems it's like fucking breath work. It's like the shit that the Dalai Lama just recently told us to do when we we're in India, like face to face, he said, I wake up every morning and I do my breath work so I can be a kind and compassionate person. And, uh, live a long and happy life and represent the Tibetan people. Like it doesn't really get much better than that. And it needs to be done on the daily. And if that is done on the daily, if I was a benevolent dictator, I would legislate that everyone must do that. And uh, apart from that, yeah, like your plant medicines and, and, and these kinds of things are really helpful doing community work, but like in these kinds of communities is really enlightening and amazing. I guess the problem is though, like, you know, it's one thing working at a soup kitchen. It's it's another thing living, you know, the reality of someone in the slum in Soweto or where or Louisiana, Louisiana or Southside Chicago. Like, you know, it's it's one thing to go work in a soup kitchen once a week, but try living fucking six months or three months in in, in these parts of the world to really get an idea of uh, how others are living. Yeah. So, man, oh, I reckon cool, you are. Totally. I, I, I agree. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to say to Bill Gates when I meet him or whatever, but it's like, I don't know what I'm going to say to you next sentence. So like try to have a gut and just go with it. I don't know, man. Like riding the waves at Canaries, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's get back into the surfing for a bit. Because, uh, yeah, let's go. Uh, man, you just mentioned jumping off a boat uh, 15 Ks out to sea. Now I believe this is uh, an allusion to pretty infamous uh incident that occurred uh, probably it's probably the incident that you're best remembered for uh and actually before i even go there let's just also make the point that you know surfing at the end of the day whether it is cones of mortal coincidence or the ripple at, at mona basin it, it's fr pure frivolity like it's it's a fucking privilege to even be in the water um and do this shit and ultimately like surfing really is just uh like you know this culture that we we're talking about now like it, it's it is the, the, like most sports opioids for the masses it's a distraction from the fucking gibberish that uh, is going on in the world which you're now invested in correcting so you know you live in a life of perfect balance man you spent um the first half just stuffing your face in cones of mortal coincidence and uh now you're evening out the ledger by doing <laughs> meaningful work for people that uh, not yourself so like i, uh, I don't know to... i don't know about that man i was always this fucking wild kid who needed a holiday by the time i was 11 years old because i cared so much about the people that were getting bullied so like even when I was doing the bodyboarding, you can ask all the guys that I travel around Australia with and stuff. I was just doing my head in with what's the right way of living, who God is, what I'm, what I'm going to do to change the world or help the needy people. I, I used to say prayers to myself, leaning my head against the bus window on the way to school, like 20 minutes of repeated prayers about needy people, about people that didn't have stuff. 
like I've always been tuned that way. So whenever I did bodyboarding, I think that's why I got so religious. I felt like Jesus was the answer to help save us from stuff. So that's why I preached him so heavy on that trip where I got injured 15 Ks out to sea. So I kind of learning to take a holiday is like taking me 40 years to learn from getting out of my, you know, super invested head. And it's interesting, man, like you couldn't be in the position you're in now with the kind of influence and, and weight behind your, your words and actions. If you hadn't gone the route of bodyboarding and the style that you were doing, which was, like I said, at the very pointy end, like the literal pinnacle of anyone to fucking set foot in the ocean uh, you're at the top of just pure fucking lunacy. Uh, and like lunacy is not a kind word because we discussed, you know, there was a fine, fine art and science to it. So let's just say, uh, fuck, I don't know, uh, just the absolute pinnacle of charging. And um, yeah, so that's brought you to this point. And I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah. You, you know, as a Grom, um, you had these concerns about the world and, you know, I was raised Catholic and I'm sure that that that's a lot of that uh, is why I see the world the way that I do. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm a good Catholic or like, in some ways I am a good Catholic, uh, but, you know, probably not in the traditional religious pious sense, but yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm not here to rubbish fucking uh, Christianity or, or belief in God. I think there's, there's wisdom in, in, in all the religions. Um, the problem is really just with people who preach, uh, without practicing daily prayer. And you would, you know, that prayer you were talking about on the bus, like prayer is basically meditation. It's a, it's a fixation on something bigger than yourself. And often these mantras restore your breathing to that meditative rate that calms the central nervous system and, and makes you a, a far better and, and functioning person, but the, the, this incident, um, talk us through it, man. I, I think the wave was called salty dogs or, or some fucking psycho bomby off the coast, but mate, this is an iconic, iconic story. And I, I want to hear every stinking detail of it. Yeah, cool. So I suppose it's helpful to provide the context. There's a few layers to the context. Um, like I kind of a big believer of like two things can happen or three, four, five, six things to happen at once. What Like one part of the context was that I was totally invested in this Christian religion and I prayed to God for everything and asked everything from God. And that was just the route I took because my obsessive compulsive mind decided that I wanted to give up my life for something because I'd lived my dream and I was a pro bodyboarder, got magazine covers and I didn't know where else to go. So I went to Christianity. And that I kept bodyboarding. Um, I'm not always proud of that because I reckon it's a bit fucked. Some of the like cowardly behavior in churches. But at, at that stage of my life at 21, I just got engaged to this beautiful girl and dad was a pastor. And I'm just like, all right, let's do this. And um, so the other part of the context was that I'd just done two documentaries with Mickey Smith, who had kind of one in Ireland. Um and Can Canaries and Azores and Madeira and England where oh. we like ABC a blank canvas and I'm really proud of that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that that's an amazing film, but it, it, it caused you guys some grief, didn't it? Um grief. No, I don't think it did. Or did it? 
well, no. no, it was all it was all good. The Canary, yeah, no, no, it was all. No, oh no, there was just like a little bit of backlash on Mickey with um some of the locals at Fronton, but not really. I'm like we're still good mates with all the heavies at Fronton. Oh, but it was just, Epic. I don't know, it's just like we're the first people to put it on a mag cover. So maybe there was a little bit of banter, which hurts at the time, I suppose. I don't know. Um, But yeah, so the context for the story with the 2006 Salty Dogs thing was that Mickey said, oh, I've done two projects with you now. I reckon you should lead the next one. And we're talking about all the waves in the bottom of WA and my buddy Bryce Thurston was scouring the coast, you know, kind of we were called the rat pack. So we kind of, we were kind of a bit more gritty and like a little bit more scavengy than you sort of Chris white and that, that had made it pretty big with the tension stuff. So we, we were sort of hiding around those spaces, trying to find the big waves and cyclops and things like that. And Bryce stumbled upon all these waves down at cyclops that he'd been hunting on. And I got together with him to do this project basically and we called it the road and I prayed about it and just said, look, I want everyone to hear about the trust we can put in God basically. And that was my only hope for the project that anyone who watched the project could sort of trust God, whatever that means for you. That was, that was what I wanted from the project. So I threw 20 grand at it, got some sponsors and some uh, four wheel drives and jet skis and stuff. And I, yeah, we did it. And I, it was really interesting the the serendipity to it because like we ended up finding that wave, you know, halfway through the trip that was fifteen Ks out to sea that no one had ever surfed before and it was like twelve to fifteen foot and perfect offshore and I got a like it was just all completely magical. Like it was fucked up how how perfect it all went. But that was that was all in the context of, you know, me wanting to get to promote God basically. And, and then mm. I got sort of teased and ridiculed for that for a long time, which hurt, but I'm very proud of it at this stage at 40 years old and kind of knowing that I really put what I believed on the line. And I still believe that if we can trust in a higher power, we can have a, a good life, you know, not that I want to pigeonhole it into Jesus or other specific dogma that gets around. So in terms of the surf chat, it was like down the bottom of WA and we we had this like just shitty boats and jet skis, like like three grand's worth of a boat with no radio. And we launched the boat like a couple of days before to go around to Cape Arid, which is like 40 Ks up the coast. And the jet ski launched at the same time. We lost the jet ski guys because they pinned it along the waves and we waited out the back and we got stuck out the back until the sun had, the light had totally gone. So we got lost at sea for like eight hours and completely lost at sea. So this is 48 hours before I got the big one at Salty Dogs. And then we, the situation was so intense that it was a five meter swell and we were on this little shit tinny with no radio and one torch that shone about six meters in front of the boat. And there's like an archipelago of 104 islands. And it was literally a moment where we we're just like, okay, well, this is the real deal. Like, do we trust God or not? Like, and for me, that was what it was about. And I was just like, I don't, yeah, okay, I'm done. I'm either dead or I trust. And that for me was really special because I saw these stars 
after I kind of had that moment of trust and then I followed these stars, but I didn't want to wig out my mate, um, Ryan Maddock. Um, so I just kind of started putting this shit boat towards the stars and um, in the middle of the sea. And then he said to me, oh, Brenda, I think we should go towards those stars and there's stars everywhere but he pointed to the same stars and I was like, this is fuck, mate. I just felt like the same thing. So we're just going to do this and we we're just like really nervous, but really kind of this sense of almost comfort came across us in the coldest, most dangerous fucking situation you can possibly imagine. Like there's, there was points when you'd hear like a massive rumble and then the torchlight couldn't even reach the white water that you knew that was in front of the boat. And you just go right angle around this massive bomby or Island or whatever it was like pitch black in the middle of nowhere. And we followed stars for about two hours. Like literally the stars changed as we, and then we ended up in this little bay, which was completely sheltered from the swell. I don't know how, but, and then we threw our anchor rope over. We had like 21 meters of anchor rope, I remember. And it was 20 meters depth. And we slept for eight hours until we woke up in the middle of nowhere at the bottom of like the Great Australian Bight. And there was an infrared helicopter looking for us for eight hours. And they couldn't find us anywhere. And we woke up and saw a, a, um, a four-wheel drive in the distance, in the hills. I'm talking like in the middle of nowhere. One four-wheel drive was obviously a fisherman on a mission, camping mission or whatever. So I took the boat into the shore, jumped off in my wetsuit with the uh, petrol canister that was running in. You know, it was only half full and we knew that we had to make more movement. So, and I ran up through the scrubs to this guy who had this white troopy. And he goes, oh, fuck, you guys are the guys everyone's looking for. I was like, what? And then he opened up his car, turned on the radio, and it's like, two men missing at sea. The infrared helicopter's been looking for them all night, um, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was like, holy shit, that's us. And I just kind of, you know, that sense of embarrassment, like, we're and, and sort of, oh, no, what have I done? Like, I've made all these people worried, my family grieving back at home, thinking that I'm on the bottom of the ocean and, and like, it's just heavy. And, um, and then we got back in the boat and then I don't know how the infrared helicopter didn't find us all night, but got back in the boat after getting a few directions of how to get back to, to the base, original base camp. And we saw the helicopter on the way and just like waved to it, came around the headlands, like 40 people dressed in high vis, all their rescue gear and shit. And we just drove this shit boat up onto the beach and gave everyone a hug and, then we camped that night, the helicopter left. Everyone was like, yeah, okay, sweet. It's good you survived, blah, blah, blah. And then this pumping like six meter swell came through with perfect offshore winds. And we knew there was one island about 13 Ks out that was, that copped this like really amazing wrapping swell, kind of like a fronton kind of wave. But it was super sideshore when we checked it the next morning really gnarly sideshore, just gritty. And we're like, oh, we'll look for other waves. And on the way, sort of across we started scouring across looking for islands and waves and stuff and then we found this one wave it was like fucked up this perfect big bommy that was like 10 meters wide of barrel 
and just exploding like a cyclops, but like 15 Ks out past cyclops. And we pulled up to it and this is, we're on deadline for the magazine trip. And I'd promised my whole bodyboarding network, like all my heroes, I'd said, I'm, I'm going to come home with a cover of shit you're never going to see before because I want you all to trust in God. And um, like, so I burnt all my relationships, burnt everything and put everything on the line for this Christian vision. And I was so vulnerable. And even my mates were like, you're fucking, you know, I, I selected them because they were a bit empathetic towards my vision, but not saying they'll fully bought into it. But um, the four or five crew that I had with me were like looking at me on the boat one one day past deadline for the riptide and would and we're looking at this wave and like fuck we need we need to get some shots for the trip but you know i'm not going to kill myself and i said to them no nah, it's not rideable it's this 10 foot bomby just completely exploding like proper chopo barrels but on two meters of water um like code red barrels on two meters of water like just fucked up and totally unpredictable and and then there's this something came over me i was just like kind of like finding the bill gates to change the world that sort of sense of hope i'm like well if i do just trust and i tread lightly i don't be a dickhead i'll just galvanize this little gang and jump off the boat and show them that we can do it you know and i just paddled out and we paddled out together i paddled into a shitty one just to get warmed up got smashed and paddled back out and then the boys started catching these kind of odd wedgie ones and the kind of then Glenn Thurston got like a fucking nugget, like a proper nugget. And I was like, whoa, this is like really turning into something. We've got a couple of shots coming in on the film. Like, wow, what are we going to do now? And then this one came to me. It wedged up behind me. It was so fucking amazing. Like the perfect 10-foot wedge that came up under my flippers and lifted my body up to the point where I was completely vertical. And then the outside bowl of the wave threw over my head to the point where like I was in one of these barrels that I was just saying weren't rideable. And then the shocky picked me up and like pushed me out of the barrel. And I came out into the channel and then Bryce Thurston and the guys on this shitty little boat that was lost at sea 20 hours before they were like, Holy fuck. And we're like 15 Ks out to sea. And I just got barreled like the best barrel of my life. And I was like looking around, like literally you're, you're sitting in water where, you know, you have those images of like 10 meter great white sharks just live out there and you're just bobbing there. And I, I felt like a fucking superhero. I was like, my whole body was numb with electricity. And I was just like, nothing matters anymore. I'm like, I don't care about anything. This is everything. I went back out. And I just paddled into the biggest one I could find and and free fell top the bottom um smashed my face and my arm against the rocks on the bottom popped out the other end i was just like fuck yeah like and then um went to four drive to hospital and got 63 stitches in my face and my arm and i was just like turned up to church the next day and esperance was like god he's fucking real like <laughs> and i oh, i was fully sane i wasn't delusional like i wasn't psychopath i I just knew what I'd prayed for came true. And then from there, it was just like this encouragement. I just said, like, put it on the front cover, get the message out there. You can trust God. I'm going to get married and live my life. 
<laughs> so that's where I kind of my bodybuilding career finished. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, man. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, everything everything I'd ever worked for, it was kind of culminated in that moment since I was a 12-year-old kid who just wanted to give money to poor people and fucking wanted to hang out with folks that had nothing. Like I always had that heart, but I knew that that was my moment just to say, trust God, because I knew I couldn't help all the poor people. I knew I couldn't fix everything, but I, I felt this strong need to do like do something for the world be be good for someone you know so i knew that that was the mm. only thing i could offer the world man it's fascinating and where to start with that i mean why not why why shouldn't god exist and and why why shouldn't that be the, the perfect example of it like like you you manifested and you had intentions set so firmly and it enabled you to survive a situation in the boat that is ridiculous. Like, I mean, that part of the world, five meter swells, you're off the, the Southwest tip of Australia. It is infamous for how treacherous the ocean is. And that's not even taking into account a fucking archipelago of bombies. Like that's just insane. Yeah, we had, we'd heard like that. we were befriended all the fishermen prior to that, and they were telling us these horror stories of fishermen's bodies that never get found again. And so there's all that going on in our head at the same time. So it's like the proper edge of the edge for us. And yeah, it's it's fucking cool, eh? <laughs> it's so cool, man. And uh, I mean, I guess the the only problem with that kind of commitment to god is when you take it into a church and, and it gets reconstituted through the fucking tim tam eating fucking middle australian suburbanite prism of malaise and, yeah. and sickness and, oh totally and, 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 and they're, they're not these guys aren't out there like yeah, yeah. Uh, putting, putting their faith and intention to work the way you did so yeah well the, that's what i did the next 10 years i went into the church and i and I fucking pounded the same belief, but then I just ended up in this box. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like I'm trying to run this shit little youth group with kids that are dressing the same in some rich suburb of Sydney. Like this is not like, I'm, I don't want to be here. And that's where I sort of, you know, tried to angle at that sense of trust in a broader sense. And, um, mm. It, it it is weird, you know, I copped so much shit for being irresponsible, like, you fucking idiot, you relied too much on the um safety resources, and you did this and you did that, I've just copped, like, that for 20 years, but that, like, is the truth of the story, what I told you, and and that was right to me, and that belief still exists um in me, but it's not part of your fucking Oxford Falls Christian City Church, you know, like, it's just, it's just a different Maybe that is part of that, but it's just lost in the Tim Tams or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, man, at the end of the day, like, and I guess this is where Christianity uh, separates from something like Tibetan Buddhism, right? Like there is no dogma in Tibetan Buddhism. It's all about the practice. It's all about what you do on the daily to cultivate that connection with God. Can be Buddha nature, can be yeah. Christ consciousness. It's the same fucking thing. Mm. But what it relies on is 
the the methods that you employ to maintain and cultivate that connection with God. And yeah. I don't see a lot of that in Christianity. You know, I just see a lot of cunts talking and yeah. like trying to instruct and like believe yeah. this or think this. And it's not about that. It, it's about thinking less. I think it's on the way out too. I mean, there's no one going to those churches anymore as far as I'm concerned. Like it, I think that was a bit of a Vogue channel that went, but people are getting real again. I reckon, you know, people are hoping in larger things. That's what I reckon around the place. You know, people are understanding that, you know, when you get high off Wim Hof, you can kind of stabilize your soul in a way that serves you. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, like it fully connects you with a consciousness that is not yours in a sense. It's, it's something that's like out there mm. and, and that we can all tap into. It exists there. And you can tap into it at any point, but you have to do these these things to get there. And these things have no dogma attached to them. Because yeah. once you do them, you reach that point. You reach the Christ consciousness uh, or the Buddha nature. And you're there. You, you don't have to – there's no thinking your way into that space. You can't. Yeah. You, you have to put your shoulder to the wheel and rip in to get there to that point. And I guess I see that in your journey because – that's what you did. You had such a clear goal and intention in mind and you had applied yourself to this art form that is essentially like such a close connection to God or to nature, mm. you know, which is one and the same thing in, in my opinion. And you're so connected yeah, to totally. nature and you, and you respect nature and you appreciate it and you're playing in it and you're connecting with it. And then you, you reach the pointiest pinnacle of it and still, Still, like your intention is selfless. It's to prove that this connection with nature or this connection with God is real and and it's there and and you need to trust that it's there and and, and you proved all that and then you fucked up by going one too many, which is you know the classic pitfall of the surfer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, that was. I got a sick one. One more. One more. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cool to retell that story, man. I I feel connection with you, Jed. I I I reckon it's fucking beautiful what you what you're into, and you know what we get to do is we tap into, you know, seeing things that are beyond ourselves. We're in a really interesting time of what we can do with our lives. Everything, not there's no rules anymore. You know, there's no rules. Like when we were growing up, we got told we had to go to uni and get a job, but now, like, it's all proven fucking wrong it's we, we we just need to trust god find ways to get money and do something without 80 years on the planet <laughs> mate that that's it and it, it's crazy like this podcast uh world has opened up connections with yourself uh, i was just chatting about recently tom de souza um you know a, a young bloke from perth who ended up a a, a meth addict and surfing and uh, meditation and yoga and these things helped him out of it. And, and, and the message is always the same. Yeah. Everyone I talk to, whether it's yourself, whether it's Wayne Cleveland, whether it's Kobe Abaddon, whether it's Tom D'Souza, whether it's Tom yeah. Carroll, yeah, the message the is always the same. Yeah. And like, that's having a huge impact on people, man. Like everywhere I go, I meet people who listen to this podcast and they're young blue collar men. You yeah. know, and, and we've shattered that paradigm of, of what it means to be a young blue collar man. Totally. Um, Listening to your boss yeah. that abuses you and you got to try to figure out how to find worth in your life and you go partying to try to find fucking some degree of happiness. And 
when they can fucking skip all that and understand it all means nothing. There's no rules. <laughs> and they can like somehow find some juice out of life with some Wim Hof. <laughs> Seriously, man. It's crazy. Like none of this shit existed when I was a kid. There was there was no yeah, like, I, I, I had no people to look up to doing stuff like this or having these conversations because podcasts didn't exist and yeah. you never really got to peer behind totally. the curtain and see what your heroes were really like. Yeah. So you got this one dimensional perspective of them. Yeah. Uh, in the fucking pages of a surfing magazine yeah. or on the telly. And now you get yeah. to hear hear what they're about and you get to hear that this this life of celebrity and, and, and rock star and being the surf star or the fucking sports star is <laughs> is worthless and leaves you feeling <laughs> awful. Yeah. And that really all you've got in life is your health and the way to cultivate health is through these methods that we talk about mm. ad nauseum on this program. But um, and, and they restore you to... Um, this this God consciousness, this Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, whatever you call it, it it's mad that we're this, this is this undeniable fucking yeah. universal yeah. truth is emerging yeah. from these conversations totally. in the midst of the trials and tribulations of our lives, yeah. which are fucking exceptional to listen to, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I love listening to trials <laughs> and tribulations. Oh, mate, that's what attracted me to your story, where you like you said you had trouble with like anger and just getting you just so fucking anxious and um you'd started just disciplining yourself to do Wim Hof every day and you know I, I suppose it's probably helpful to say like it doesn't really matter if it's Wim Hof or if it's like smashing some butterfly strokes between headlands or whether it's like totally like I do all sorts of methods and have done for the last 20 years to try to process my obsessive compulsive disorder which I've been medicated for and have been fucking suffering for to the nth degree for 20 years so that's my particular thorn in my flesh but there's lots of methods but yeah there are some common denominators like finding stillness trusting in a higher power getting yourself radically cold and radically hot and then um mm. connecting with people and listening and still and, and not chasing some external sense of joy but looking within and knowing it's all there Mm, knowing it's all within you yeah, yeah. like the keys are, that that's so powerful man to, to know that that whatever's happening in the external world ultimately the responsibility is with you yeah to get yourself up for the challenges but also the power is is within you and it's yeah. and you need to have the tools to access that but that's what we're telling you right now is we're giving you the tools to access it no one gave me the fucking tools growing up no one gave our generation the tools so uh you know that the, there is no excuse now and i i find like if you know what the solution is and you don't act on it the universe fucks you man like it, it, it doubles down. It, 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 it doubles down on, on the torture, but it, I don't know about don't that. Know I reckon, what... I reckon you get like 10th, 11th, 12th, third. Like, I reckon you get a lot of grace. You get lots of chances. You get 10th chance. You get like, uh, as far as my experience is. Well, it's like my take on it is like, if you don't know the tools, then you get a free pass. The universe lets you off, lets you off uh, time and time again. But as soon as you, have these tools in your arsenal and, and you start doing them here and there, but then you, it's almost like it, it, it makes the torture worse because it opens your eyes to it, it builds a layer of self-awareness. Sure. Uh, so when things do go wrong, it's like even more painful and, and, and 
makes you almost more angry at yourself or yeah. Like if you just dip your toe in the water of this shit, I feel like it's even worse. Or like, if you know about it and don't do it, but I look at like, yeah, a lot of people who just live lives of of suffering and uh, total ignorance and, you know, yeah, the universe kind of gives them, it's my, my take on it that the universe gives them a free pass. And then someone at some point goes, here you go, mate, here's this range of tools to, to sort your shit out. And at that point, if you don't take them up on that, the universe fucks you. But anyway, that's <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting theory. I, when I'm fucked, like I, every week I become pretty fucked with obsessive compulsive disorder, lying on the ground, almost in tears, hopeless. And I always say, please help me. Just please help me. So it's a sense of dependency and surrender um, that I really, my best mates in the world are addicts. And that's where I relate to them, where they just kind of go, fuck, I can't. I've got very little I can do in my own strength. And then from that place, I somehow get energy to do something. And then that usually ends up me fucking swimming butterfly between a couple of headlands and then somehow drinking a coffee and feeling like I can do something again. <laughs> well, that, that, but see, there you go, man. Like, that's the thing, right? So, you know, do you do Wim Hof every day? Because you, you don't have to swim... Uh, you don't have to go to that extreme length <laughs> to, to get that to get that fix. You can, oh, you know, you can do it in your yeah, bed each here. morning. You know, you can do those five or six rounds, and then you can just straight after it do the meditation. And then I feel like that would go a long way to preventing, you know, the body. I, I don't really know, but have you tried that? Yeah, like just a yeah, daily yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah, daily practice of Wim Hof, hundred percent. But I feel like I needed the endorphins from hard exercise too. You need like, exercise. Don't, yeah, that, I'm not saying replace yeah. it. I mean, like, like I like the exercise is a crucial component. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The endorphins. Yeah, so are the cold, cool. the cold exposure, the Wim Hof, and and the exercise for me, I think because of, I think I've got an imbalance of serotonin uptake in my brain from what I know. So I I do get very fucking anxious and very unstable and sad, and then if I just get in not punish myself bad, just hit the treadmill for 15 minutes, maybe go hard the last minute, do 500 meters in the cold ocean pool. That That's a good compliment to the Wim Hof stuff because it gets my heart rate up and the endorphins going yeah. and the tone and comes in. So it's fucked, man. I'm so needy. I, my wife knows it. My kids know it. Dad needs his exercise, you know, but I'm actually a good guy at this stage in my life to be around because I know that I, I need those little punches of 15 minutes and I've gotten good at, finding it people ask me if i surf anymore i'm like man do you want me to drive to like four hours down the coast to maybe hopefully get a wave of 50 people out depot to somehow get a high that i can get on a treadmill for fucking 15 minutes you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's kind of where i'm at these days so what about the meditation um i can get stuck because i get obsessed like I, i know meditation is watching thoughts but I definitely do find my own meditation, but it's more in vivo, you know, in life. So I'll like have that sense of stillness in my day to day. But if I find 15 minute period to sit and do the meditation, I'll fuck myself over and I can't stay still on it. And I've tried. Yeah, but man, that, that's an excuse, dude. Like at the end of the day, like this, people say this all the time, right? And that that's the experience of meditation for everyone. Like it's, it's, it, it's, that's what it is. It's, it's struggling to sit still 
and deal with your thoughts, like as in witness them and, and focus on the breath, but eventually you get there and it might, it sometimes takes, it generally takes me at least 15 minutes. And then the last five minutes is, uh, is, is, is proper and peaceful. I heard a podcast with these. <laughs> Jedi, let me say, let me say you've sold me, bro. Like you've got me again. You said this Wim Hof stuff about three eps, eps ago and you got me right into the Wim Hof and you've challenged me on the meditation and I'm going to sink in, man. I, I get it. Yeah, man. <laughs> you've, you've Seriously. Got, I like how you dig in, man. That fucking Eastern suburbs ghetto in you just gets me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it is what it is. Like, and you know, people like, um, and the reason we're having this conversation is because that's what people always say, what you just said. And, um, you know, these, these, these illnesses like OCD, ADD, bipolar, like, I'm not saying they don't exist, but what I am saying is that these methods really help with regulating the neurochemicals through tapping into the, you know, autonomic, uh, what is it, the autonomic nervous system or the, you know, the, these kind of, these these fundamental uh like the endocrine system the, these fundamental like valves in your body that regulate these these neurochemicals like serotonin and stuff like that's what these methods do and that they bring you to stasis they allow the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system to to do what they do because they you've released them from the pressure of anxious thoughts and the 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 fight and flight mode and you know like a lot of these up and down you're feeling like i remember being you know um diagnosed with, with complex ptsd and prior to that though like they were telling me i, I could have been bipolar they were, they were telling me when i was a kid i had add and we, we just didn't buy it like and especially the bipolar thing but what i realized was you know ptsd is up and is an up and down ailment like fuck like you, you can spend a long time very depressed and, and anxious because you've triggered yourself and you're living in a cortisol state and, and cortisol cancels serotonin and then once the cortisol lifts and the serotonin comes back yeah you kind of you're celebrating you're cheering you feel euphoric because mm. you haven't experienced fucking serotonin in a week or more even so Thanks yeah challenge me like, it, like seriously bro like thanks for challenging me and i i love it this is it man this is what we do there's no use doing a podcast celebrating some fucking big wave exploit this is the real juice like and i hope kids listen to this i hope people listen to this in their dark corners of their life when they're driving to the shit job that they hate or whatever um it's, it's no doubt so they good. are man no doubt they are yeah yeah and Man, like, you know, you watch, like I mentioned Adam Curtis, the, the iconic BBC documentary maker uh, and, and the work that he's done exposing like the DSM, the, the, the diagnostic manual that is used by psychiatrists to uh, diagnose people with ailments and, and how fucking bogus it is and, and how uh, that book, which is the Bible for psychiatrists and the whole psychiatric and pharmaceutical industry, how it's been used to overprescribe ailments, overdiagnose ailments, overprescribe um, medications on the back of it. And like, it's not to say, like I said, that they don't exist, but you should definitely try it. Like, I, you know, for me, it was about stacking this shit on top of each other. But the problem is it takes time and not everyone has the time to properly heal. And that's bullshit. There should be that time. It's another motivating force for redistributing wealth and, and um, money, which is just time. Um, yeah. So redist 
redistributing time to the people, but really, yeah, it's about stacking these modalities on, on top of each other and then seeing where you're at and, and then got reaching for the, 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 the medications because too often they're given out first and mm. uh, all this other shit no, is marginalized. You. Yeah. I'm with you, bro. Like I'm the same as the billionaires that are distributing wealth though. Like I'll, I'll advocate for the system that's fucking got a couple of SSRIs prescribed as well as what you're talking about. Cause I want it all. I'm not going to fucking say that they're fucking me up by prescribing stuff to me because that's making them an enemy in my mind. And that does no good for my soul. Like, so I then carry that shit around. So that's my, my point of difference, I suppose, with how you're communicating the stuff, but maybe that's just how you communicate. Cause you grew up in a family that kind of has a go, like you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. I want to talk about Eileen's finding that. And also the drug trials, dude. <laughs> I, I got told that you <laughs> talk about fucking mate, uh, tempting fate. The yeah, I don't know if you listen to that Robert Kennedy Jr. podcast, but maybe you're loaded up with mercury, dude, from all those fucking yeah. Well, the, the funny Europe. thing is, the funny thing is that Crashy and Harry did all of them. I stayed to get the juice off the Conaquence. Um, so I never went to the drug trials. Those guys were oh, hungry for the cash. Yeah, I did work. Was... The, I worked the Settlers Tavern and scrubbed some floors in a fucking. Penzance nightclub, but I never went to the drug drug trials. Yeah, <laughs> the drug trials. So yeah, the lads were getting four thousand pounds to get experimental drugs uh, yeah. tested on them, right? Which they then used to chase cones all over the planet. Yeah, um, yeah. Or just spent like... spent them on their fucking MySpace internet cafe use or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's been too good. Yeah, fuck, dude. I'd uh, I'd happily jump on again with you. Um, I feel like yeah, just barely scratched. The yeah, surface. just getting so moved, getting getting warmed up. Hey, eh? Th- thanks, Jedo. I, if you do want to go on again, I'll, I'll pounce at the opportunity. But for now, I'll send you these recordings, and you're a fucking hero in my eyes, bro. Like, <laughs> I don't get no, nah, I don't care what you say and how you perceive yourself. That's where you're at. So, um, there's a lot of people that are hungry to hear your conversations with people, and I hope you keep seeking it out and getting some juice out. Hundred percent, man. We'll see you in the next Swellness Summit, and we can fucking stack these modalities on top yeah, of each other. Let's and then... stack them. Rack them and stack them. <laughs> Sounds good. On your right. know, man. You're you you are the man. The absolute mortal cone warrior. See you, Smithy. Cone See you, brother. <laughs>